Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, we're going to the Caribbean today. Well, virtually at least. Uh, Nick Ramos is with us today and he's the host of a podcast that tells the story of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, But he's here today to talk to us about some of the key moments in the island's history and how they changed um, the course of its history. I'm really excited. We haven't done anything over in this direction yet. How are you, Nick? Uh, Thank you. Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. And uh, it's going to be a pleasure being uh, your first uh, Latin American history type guy. Absolutely. Have you guys done Latin American history before? No, this is it, isn't it? Apart from yeah. me telling the story of that bonkers Bolivian dictator in the pub <laughs> show last week. No, this is it. So it's I'm really excited. Exciting. Definitely. Yeah. Um, where are you and how was lockdown? All right. So uh, I'm in Miami right now. I'm typically in New York, but I escaped uh, prior before it uh, turned into escape to New York. And yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm relatively safe in Miami, spacious, not living in a little rat den. Uh, I know this is terrible for a lot of people, but... Uh, I'm doing good during the quarantine, working out, being productive. Well, sounds better than what we're doing. Yeah, we're just talking, <laughs> getting absolutely no exercise at all and recording podcasts, basically. <laughs> Let's talk about Cuba and not mine right. and Alina's suffering. Go on, Alina, start us off with a question. So you've given us in advance some key points that you want to talk, talk about um, that you feel is significant. So if we read them back to you one at a time and we'll, we'll have a chat. Uh, sure. Perfect. So the first one, number one, everyone, is discovery and early Spanish colonizing efforts. And go. All right. Fantastic. On the spot. Uh, (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. So before we get into that, uh, realistically, why why I made the podcast is um, probably the first thing, because Cuban history to this day is still very contentious. Mm. The Miami community and the Miami uh, refugee community is a very political community that actively hates the government of the island and the government of the island of any time it gets, you know, is not particularly kind toward the United States. This is modern history. So in a way, these things are still emotionally charged and a lot of people are still very invested. Now, I was born in Cuba. Uh, I, lived there, I lived there for nine years. And then I came uh, in 2006 to, to Miami. Um, And I grew up, you know, hearing stories about the revolution and understanding that more or less Cuba was stuck in in a weird state of stagnation. You know, people talk about the cars you can see running around 1950s old Fords and uh, Ladas from the Soviet Union and whatnot. And uh, I've always been interested in history. I did history in undergrad. And um, 
at one point I realized that the Cuban community is sort of uh, ahistorical in a lot of senses. And that's not meant as an insult. It's just meant as an observation in the sense that the Castro regime or the Cuban regime treats everything before the revolution as, you know, not particularly good. Nothing that happened is worth discussing much apart from the fact that it was a colony, then a very corrupt neo-colony. And as revolutions tend to do, they want to put year zero, the first in 1959, when the revolution comes to power. Whereas the Miami community has a very different attitude and almost thinks of Castro as this incredible force that comes out of a vacuum. You know, in 1959, Cuba's this beautiful, bustling place. Then Castro happens, and now it's terrible. But Castro, of course, doesn't come out of a vacuum. He comes out of a long history of corruption, colonial and neocolonial rule. And so I thought it was important to try to retrace the history, not only for myself to understand, but maybe to, uh, you know, start a discourse with the different communities, both in Cuba and in Miami, you know, around the world, to see what we can make of the history of the island, a history that's not necessarily defined by Castro. Yeah. So that's why I started the podcast. Mm. I think that's what we really wanted to do with you was to, to I mean, we will get to Castro because it is a significant point of Cuba's history, but we wanted to get you on to talk to people about stuff they didn't, had not heard about and did not know about Cuban history because it's overshadowed by Castro. Yeah, precisely. Um, as a... An ex-congressman from Florida said to me once that without Castro, uh, Cuba is just another province of Mexico, which I think uh, is an interesting point. But certainly there's a lot more beautiful history to the island and ugly history than before 1959. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first point was the early Spanish conquest and Cuba. Am I correct? It is, yeah. All right. So uh, we got to go into the the mists of pre-Columbian time for this. Because when the Spanish first arrive on the island, they find a population of Indians called the Taino Indians, Amerindians. But the Taino are not originally from Cuba. They came, they were river people from the Orinoco Delta, which is in South America, Venezuela. And uh, by the time the Spanish get to Cuba, the Taino have already, I don't know if colonized is the the right word, I don't think it is, Mm. but they've essentially taken over the island because there were other Amerindian inhabitants on the island that the Taino subjugated, more or less. So the the actual culture of the Taino, we don't know uh, a lot about it. It's much like uh, a lot of the cultures of the uh, South American peoples, um, a lot of it has been lost, especially since they were a non-literate culture, but even more so in Cuba. When you look at Cuban people today, unlike if you, say, look at someone from Bolivia or someone from Guatemala or someone from Mexico, it's very hard to instantly identify them as an Amerindian. Sometimes you can just look at a person and tell. Whereas in Cuba, the Indians are pretty much wiped out. Uh, now, uh, it's, so a lot of their culture is lost, uh, even more so because there's no great Aztec empire or Mayan empire or anything like that that can continue uh, a history and that's eventually delivered to modern people today. So the Cubans arrive eventually, Columbus does his trip, and they, uh, they start establishing an outpost in Hispaniola, which is modern-day Haiti and Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And from Hispaniola, then they invade Cuba. Now, Cuba at this time had already been warned that the Spaniards were coming because... 
multiple Indian chiefs escape from the island of Hispaniola and try to start an insurrection in Cuba, warning people like, hey, there are these weird people coming with ships and guns and boats and feral dogs. The dogs are a particularly big sticking point in the early history because the, the dogs would tear the Indians apart. Oh, wow. Um, there are these people coming to subjugate and kill us. And particularly, there's this uh, well-known Indian chief who's sort of a folk hero now. He's also on a beer, the first beer I ever had. His name <laughs> is uh, Atue. And he escapes Hispaniola, comes to Cuba to warn the local population to start an insurrection. He doesn't particularly succeed, though. And the Spanish just begin rolling the Taino Indians. Eventually, they catch Atue, and they tie him up to burn him alive at the stake. And so uh, a priest is reading him, you know, his last rites. And uh, the Indian Atue asks him, um, do all Christians get to go to heaven? Uh, and the priest answers, of course, if you're a good Christian, you repent, you get to go to heaven. And Atue answers, in that case, I'd rather go to hell because I don't want to be around such cruel people. Mm. So that's sort of the first martyr that's gone down in the ages, despite the fact that modern-day Cubans are a combination of mostly African and European roots, that is the first martyr for what is the concept of Cuba, an Indian that was waging resistance against the very first colonizers on the island. And despite the fact that there's not a significant Amerindian population in Cuba today, uh, the, Indian, uh, the, the Cuban constitution claims lineage directly from the struggles of the Indians against the Spanish crown. So that in that way, Cuba is particularly unique from South America and Central America in the sense that there's not this rich cultural her heritage of uh, Indians to draw upon. Um, I'm guessing it goes rather the way of tragically other Indian populations uh, in, in the uh, Western Hemisphere and that they're wiped out. Yeah, they're more or less wiped out now. Uh, and, and they're subjected to the encomienda system, yeah. which is... Uh, you know, the system of forced labor, because technically under the Spanish crown, just technically, the Indians aren't slaves. They're made subjects of the Spanish crown rather quickly. But from the Reconquista period in which Spain is fighting the Moors, you know, and the Moors invade after Islam, there's a very quick takeover of most of the known world at that point. Yeah. Um, a, Spain institutes a system in which you trade labor for military protection. And they bring that system with them to the Caribbean. So their pitch to the Indians is, hey, you give us your labor and we'll protect you militarily. But the Indians don't really need military protection against anybody but the Spanish. So the encomienda system is more or less slavery with additional trappings. So they're subjected to that. Uh, they die, you know, of disease. They die death, uh, deaths of desperation. They commit suicide. But uh, a good amount of them do run to essentially inland communities and they set up far from the cities, their own towns. And over time, they'll breed in with the population, particularly of escaped slaves. So for example, I did a 23andMe, and despite the fact that I look 100% European, I'm 3% Taino. Mm -hmm. So the blood has been distilled to such point uh, by intermarriage and breeding with escaped slaves and breeding with other people that now many hundreds of years later, it's not significant, but it's there. Yeah. Um, let's move on slightly because as usually happens, because this is just my lot and it's how we roll, the British turn up. Uh, talk to us about the War of Jenkins' Ear and the, the British capture of, of Havana. 
What a name. Yeah. Um, it's crazy, so, right? Yeah, it's a weird war. Because it gets folded into to the it gets folded into the Seven Years War. It gets folded into the War of Austria of uh, Austrian Succession, I think, right? It does. It's not quite as good as the Emu War, um, in which the <laughs> Australians get their asses handed to them by birds. But tell us about the War of Jenkins' Ear. So, from my understanding, the War of Jenkins' Ear is is a sort of a stage one between the uh, the competition that Great Britain has with with Spain at this time, or Great Britain really badly wants access to uh, Spanish ports. This is around the time of uh, Sir Robert Walpole, I believe, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, funny dealings with the South Seas Company, uh, being allowed to only have two ships that can come to, uh, to the Caribbean and South America to trade. Uh, so at this time, the, the Spanish have a right to look inside British vessels to make sure there's no contraband. And they, they seek to enforce this right because we're still living in the era of mercantilism, trade, uh, so I, I guess I guess I got to go a little bit back. So in the first in the first few years of Cuban development, the first few hundred years, Cuba is not a very important place because Cuba is not a resource rich place. The gold mines in Mexico and and Peru and silver mines and things like that they're not on the island. So the island realistically just turns into a port island with one significant port, two really, but really one Havana. Primarily, it's an agriculture economy uh, to make meat uh, so it can feed sailors. And realistically, it, it's only important because it serves as the fulcrum of the Spanish Empire. Because treasure ships, ships carrying uh, gold and silver from Mexico and Peru have to stop in Havana. So they can receive, uh, they can be joined by, by British uh, ships and they can protect them all the way. I mean, by Spanish ships. And they can be protected all the way until Cadiz. Cuba was only allowed to trade with one port in Spain, the Cadiz port. So it's a very restrictive system of trade under mercantilism. And of course, Britain is trying to do their best to at least try to trade or undermine Spanish rule in the Caribbean and the Spanish empire. So like I was saying, Spanish people are impressed, uh, are checking British ships for contraband. This was part of a treaty. And uh, one particular... So the story goes, one particular man, uh, a Mr. Jenkins, a captain, is stopped by the Spanish authorities, and in their check, they accuse him of smuggling, and they cut off his ear. And of course, he goes back to Parliament, and he starts raising a stink. Now, Robert Walpole doesn't really want to do anything about it, but there is a pro-war faction, uh, and they carry the day. And so this is stage one. It's really a large dispute. It's, it's a war fought over, over trading rights where the inciting incident is this ear incident. Um, and the British don't particularly do well because uh, this war starts out and they sort of lose everywhere except in Havana. And they do take the island of Cuba and that's a very important time. But, you know, that war gets folded into the war of uh, Austrian succession with Silesia and Prussia and Austria and whatnot. And then that gets folded into the Seven Years' War. But the only place the British do well, like I said, was Havana. And they throw off the Spanish, and they do something very important on the island. They open it to trade for the very first time. Now, the British only rule in Cuba for 10 months. But in those 10 months, 
more ships enter the Havana Harbor than did in the hundreds of years since Columbus discovered the island. So all of a sudden, the Creoles, which are, you know, the whites born in Cuba, realize that, hey, we have the potential to get really rich. Right up there is North America, and they love to trade. We would love to trade with more people, but the crown won't let us. And that's the most important thing the British do. They open the island to trade for the very first time, and they give them just that little taste. And the second thing is they start bringing in slaves. So at this time, uh, the British were in charge of Jamaica. Jamaica had been a very successful planter colony, though the lands were getting very bad from years of overuse. And the British realize that Cuba has potential, but it's very backwards. It can grow sugar. It has the perfect climate, perfect land, but the technology just isn't there. It, it didn't have the capital. It didn't have the slaves. So Britain opens the island and starts bringing in slaves and modernizing the sugar economy. And those are the very important things that Britain does on the island as a result of their victory. Not their victory, but their victory in the Havana theater of War of Jenkins' Ear. Moving on to the fall of Haiti and the rise of Cuba. All right, so like I said, Britain opens the island up. And now the Seven Years' War happens. The North American colonies, as a result, will break free. It's called the French and Indian War over here. So there's, there's a spirit in the air right now of the Enlightenment. Things have to liberalize. You have to give the Cuban Creoles some rights. Uh, or at the very least, allow them to trade. So when Britain gives Cuba back as, um, at the end of the, the Seven Years' War, Spain starts to speed up sugar production. And it starts cooperating with England, particularly uh, in English firms, to import more slaves into Cuba. And so sugar starts kicking up. But still, the biggest producer of sugar at this time is Haiti. And Haiti has perhaps the, the first and only successful slave rebellion in 1791. The Haitian Revolution and its importance is, is pretty, it's a pretty overlooked revolution, but it's very difficult to understate it for what it means for Cuban history. Because overnight, Cuba's main competitor when it comes to sugar exporting is knocked out. Everything is burnt. A slave republic is established. So not only is Cuba in the perfect position to take over the sugar market, but now the local white population gets it in their head that there could be a slave rebellion. And that's very important because in the 19th century, a lot of the reason why the Spanish-American Empire falls after Napoleon knocks around the Spanish, but it remains faithful in Cuba. It doesn't falter there, is because the Cuban planter class, the Creoles, need the Spanish crown to protect them against the slaves. They're making a lot of money all of a sudden. They can trade with North America. They have a lot more slaves. More ports are open to them in Spain. Uh, there are, the tax code is, is uh, made a bit better, so... Um, it's more easy to import and export slaves. But then they realize that, oh my God, we're bringing in a lot of slaves. What happened in Saint-Domingue and what happened in Haiti is going to happen to us. We can in no way give up Spain 
because fighting a war against Spain would mean liberating our own slaves. And we're not going to do that. We're making a killing here. Mm. So we have to attach ourselves to the struggling empire. And meanwhile, Spain is having its own problems. So in 1791, the Haitian Revolution happens, right? Haiti falls. Cuba is now in the perfect position to start producing sugar. So it starts pumping out sugar to the point where it's producing most of the world's sugar in the 19th century. At the same time, though, two perpetual bugbears begin biting away at the Spanish Empire in their foreign policy that are going to make a big mess in the 19th century. Actually, three. The first one is that now we're dealing with different ideas. The Enlightenment hits, and then afterwards, Napoleon sort of exports nationalism to the world. So you start to see traces of Cuban nationalism in the 19th century. The idea that, yes, Cuba is an independent place with its own people and whatnot, and maybe it should have more of a say on who it can trade with or what the laws are or how it's going to represent itself. Now, none of this is egalitarian, mind you. A lot of this is big white planter thinking, you know, bankers, and although there were no banks in Cuba at the time, but, you know, men, uh, at this time, merchants. Merchants sort of operated as their own banking Uh, Cuba was indebted all the time to merchants, English merchants, American merchants, and Spanish merchants. And merchants sort of just ran their own bank because there was no banking system on the island. But the economy is expanding. At the same time, though, corrupting forces enter the island. And by what I mean corrupting forces, I mean nationalism, the idea that Cuba should be its own independent nation, and then British and American capital. There's, there's a, a, great, uh, a great way which a captain general, because after uh, a ca- Cuba's ruled by captain generals during the 19th century, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a Roman consul. It's essentially military and, and political rights in, in one man. And from 1820 on, basically, 1820 to its revolution, Cuba's basically under martial law, uh, being ruled by fiats and decrees and particularly due to the specific personalities of the captain generals. As England and the United States start infringing on the island's foreign policy and on Spain's foreign policy, a captain general uh, calls it, uh, quote, Anglo-Saxon ironmongery. Anglo-Saxon ironmongery, which I think is a great term to describe the fact that England and America were trying to build railroads, and if they built railroads, they would be in control of, you know, all transport and shipping across the island. So what England does that particularly bothers Cubans, less so the Spanish, is England starts to clamp down on the slave trade. There's the famous Somerset case in which, uh, you know, a slave, uh, in which a court decides that there is no common law to say there's any slavery in England. And eventually that chips away into most European nations banning the slave trade and then banning slavery outright. Mm-hmm. And England starts imposing on Spain we know you now have the most profitable colony that makes sugar, but you got to cut back on importing slaves. And by 1820, Cuba says no more slave trading. But the captain generals were particularly corrupt men who turned the other, you know, looked the other way. And so they take bribes and slave trade continues, except this time it's, you know, it's piracy. It's, it's people, it's smuggling, people smuggling it in. Mm. And at the same time, Cubans have now made contact with American capital and English capital, so they start looking elsewhere for support, for expansion. Now, America really wants to buy Cuba. They try multiple times, particularly because in the War of 1812, 
which is a spat between uh, England and the United States over whether uh, English or over whether England could impress uh, American sailors that were doing trading against their will. Uh, Britain uses Cuba to stage attacks on the United States. Yeah. They use the ports. And the it's United 90 miles, isn't it? It's 90 miles from Key West, exactly. And the, uh, there's an iconic sign of Key West. You can walk to it. Cubans love to take pictures of the, of the sign themselves with like the 90-mile sign. Um, and the, the Americans never forget that Cuba was used to attack them in 1812. And at the same time, you have the American South, which is, you know, really coming into its own in the 18th century before it's smacked down in the Civil War. And they're looking at this, they're, they're mad with Anglo-Saxon fever. They're looking at this grand slave em- empire they can build by taking California, taking Mexico, taking Cuba. And so U.S. foreign policy really wants to buy Cuba. And they offer to buy Cuba several times. I believe Thomas Jefferson's actually the first president, who is the third president of the United States, who tries to buy Cuba. It happens again a few years later. It happens again right before the Civil War. And this is all happening while rebellions are breaking out in the island against Spanish rule. There are slave rebellions, and then there are something uh, called uh, filibuster rebellions, which is when Cubans go to the United States and they raise a bunch of money and they get people, and then they try to sail on the island and reclaim it. And movements start to say, maybe we shouldn't be with Spain. They're ruling by captain generals. Uh, their decrees are arbitrary. They, they stifle growth. Maybe we should join the United States as a state and be annexed. And of course, the southern United States is very much in favor of this because the dynamic in the United States at this time is if you have, uh, slavery is going to go away. The North doesn't really want it. They want to they ban it. But if the South had a majority of slave states in the Union, then they could control the Senate and make sure that slavery could survive. This is eventually what leads to the Civil War. And so the United States wants to buy Cuba. Cuba's having an affair, a romance affair with the United States. It becomes its biggest trading, the United States becomes Cuba's biggest trading partner, more so than Spain in the 19th century. And so you start to see rebellions and rebellions and rebellions, slave rebellions and people coming from the United States and a few nationalists trying to throw off the yoke of Spain. And this goes all the way until 1860, of course. Um, The next one on your list, uh, carries on from that. So you've put from 1868 to 1895, back-to-back revolutions against the crumbling Spanish Empire. So those are all minor revolutions. Yeah. We're talking, yeah, we're talking like people that rise up with a thousand people and then are quickly crushed. These are the, the two big ones. There are three big revolutions really in human history. The Castro one and then the the big one that happens in 1895 that finally achieves independence. But before that, there's one in 1860, which is the first of the Cuban Revolution and uh, the first one where you get some founding fathers. Mm-hmm. So there's a curious trend in Cuban history that revolutions come from the Orient. That is the name of the province in, in Cuba. Uh, it's called El Oriente, the Orient. And um, of course, because it's the east of the island. Now, the Orient is a, ve- is a different place from the rest of Cuba because... It's very rural. It's significantly more rural. Uh, It has mountains and uh, tons of places where you can hide in. And it's significantly blacker. Its population is more mixed race. So from the very beginning, the Orient always has a very revolutionary flair. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, and it, an important thing to understand about Cuba is that Spain's power doesn't really project that far. Havana is important. It's the big port. But the rest of the island, and there's an important port in Santiago and whatnot, which is in the Orient, but the rest of the island can sort of go to hell, left to its own devices. And so revolutions, all three of the revolutions will start in the Orient and move westward. So what happens in 1860 is Cubans are finally almost getting a few reforms. So England has pressured Cuba into a corner to finally ban the slave trade and actually punish slave traders with, you know, capital punishments, like hanging people. Um, the American Civil War happens, so slavery is not really... The United States is not going to cooperate with the Cuban Slave Project anymore, and the Cuban Slave Project is being driven primarily by white Cubans here, not the Peninsulares from Spain. So, at this time, Spain almost gives Cuba a bunch of reforms. And then in the last second, they pull back. And instead, what they do is they tax the island a little bit more. And this hurts the Orient, which is mixed race and poor, significantly more. So planters from the Orient, white planters, start a, the first actual meaningful Cuban revolution. They free their own slaves, but they don't free everyone's slaves. In fact, if you were a slave and uh, you came to them, they would send you back. And they essentially try to, to lure the rest of the slave owners on the island that are not in the Orient to come along to their side, to say, hey, we can make a lot more money and control our own affairs if Cuba isn't uh, under the yoke of Spain. Now, this, this first revolution is really eclipsed by the later ones because it loses. It's crushed by its own internal contradictions. Mm -hmm. The fact that you cannot fight a war against Spain if you don't want to go full into revolution. This is a very, a very noble revolution in the sense that there's a big split between the military ranks and the political ranks. The military ranks really wants to go fire a machete. They want to go out, they want to torch the plantations, they want to recruit blacks, and they want to give Spain help. Whereas the political classes of the revolution, the people who make up, you know, the rebel parliament, they want to take it easy. They want to deal with the planters, move it slow, not destroy private property. So under that contradiction, it stalls because you, you can't have a revolution without a revolution. And ultimately, Spain just gets ahead of them, declares that uh, a gradual emancipation for slaves, and uh, the revolution collapses under its own inactivity. 
Now, some of the most important leaders of the second revolution will get their start here, particularly a, a big caudillo type general named uh, Maximo Gomez, which is an awesome name, Maximum Gomez. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, <laughs> Maximum Gomez. And then um, another guy who's called the Bronze Titan in history, his name is Antonio Maceo, who is a, a black, they don't quite let him be general, but he is uh, the most effective guerrilla fighter in this war. And those two are going to leave the island at the end of this war, the War of 1868, and they're just going to keep planning just outside the periphery of the Spanish Empire. And so the next revolution would happen in 1895. But from 1868 to 1895, there's just sort of low-level fighting on the island, just insurrections here and there, and, and particular intensity that knows... There's a feeling in the air that the Spanish project has to significantly change or it has to come to an end. Okay, so that was the first one. Uh, and then you said in 1895, that's the severing from the Spanish, isn't it? That's the big one, yeah. right? Like, that's the one where all the, all the people on the money fight in. That's the, the Spanish-American War is what it eventually turns into because the birth of the American Empire happens in Cuba. Mm -hmm. This is the whole, you know, they sunk the main to hell with Spain. So by, by 1890, the, the, eight, the 19th century is sort of defined by the fear of slave rebellion. They can't get away from Spain because their own slaves are going to rise up and do a Haiti. But by 1890, the slaves have attained freedom. It's a very bad freedom. They still have to work for their masters. And it's rather unceremonious, really. It's such a, it's a huge event in Cuban history, but it comes about in such an anticlimactic way. Because in just a second, the slaves are removed from... They're put into a non-existent labor market with practically no help. And no one's paying for their food or clothing or anything like that anymore. So they, they, they're thrust into a very hard life. And they're thrust into a hard life in the middle of a recession. Because at this time, beet sugar started taking off. Now, you can make sugar from cane. Mm. You can also make it from a bunch of different things. But you can make it in Europe out of the beet plant. Don't. Filming Nepal in France and climbing over sugar beets. And farmers screaming at you because they think you're treading on their sugar beets, but it's an aircraft <laughs> crash site. Right, sugar beets give me nightmares. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going with that. Yeah. Napoleon is the guy that figures this out. Napoleon, when he's cut off from the, the, the Caribbean, he figures out, hey, maybe I should really start investing in the sugar beet thing so we don't have to rely on colonies that we just lost. Because mm. his grand plan to reconquer Haiti fails and reinstitutes slavery there. And it really can't do much. And he's forced to sell Louisiana. So beet is cutting into the Cuban sugar economy. And by this time, uh, Cuba, and it's going to be like this for pretty much the rest of history. It's doomed to be this way, is a monoculture country. Which means that it only, you know, it's, it's like a, being an oil producer today. If your entire national wealth is simply tied to one thing you produce and that goes up and down and fluctuates in price, then so will your political stability, and so will the coffers of your country. Yeah. So at this time, it's, it's tied to sugar, and there's a recession. Uh, beet sugar is cutting in. And then the United States is a recession, too, in 1890, because of, you know, we're, we're in the gilded age of the United States here. There's little to no control of capitalism. And, uh, and there's rampant speculation on trains. You know, train is, trains are the, in 1890, are what the, uh, the housing market was in, in Japan in the 80s or in the United States yeah. in the 2000s. 
as I just actually coincidentally been reading about them putting down a railway line in Trinidad in five years before. Um, and yeah, it's insane. The endeavor going on and the determination to put railway lines across. Wait, you, uh, the, what year is this? And, uh, 1880, I think, or yeah, 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 exactly. So this falls neatly into the fact that the United States right now and Britain are exporting railroads to a lot of the world. Yeah. Um, and so the United States has, you know, their own homemade crash about surrounding railroad speculation. And railroads are something that's very hard to build, right? Like, you need laborers, you need to secure land rights, eminent domain, pay off people, go around mountains. So it, there's a lot of investment and there's a big crash in the United States. And when the United States is a cold, the rest of the world, you know, dies. So that happens to Cuba. Uh, and so the planter class is really really squeezed on money. Um, they're, they're super indebted because running a sugar plantation was incredibly expensive and they had just terrible spending habits. Sugar planters, honestly, are some of the worst spenders. They're either buying luxurious mansions all the time or getting themselves in more debt so they can expand. So by this time, their household debt had become too big. They're really squeezed. They don't need Spain anymore. To, to save them from a slave population that doesn't exist. And in the years between 1868 and 1895, Cuban nationalism has really come into full force. And a lot of that is the work of a very famous man who is the Cuban founding father. He's sort of the Cuban George Washington, <laughs> whose name is Jose Marti. So this is, this, this is a, a guy, a kid really. He's first arrested in, in Cuba when he's 15 or something. Uh, because he writes uh, a letter to, uh, to a friend criticizing his attachment to the Spanish crown. And the only reason he gets, they were going to do awful things to him, but his, his family, which was connected, a bit connected, begged to the judge, and they gave him six months hard labor and exiled him. So here's a 15-year-old kid in a chain gang with, you know, a, a ball and chain tied to, to his foot, who's kicked out of the country when he's 15. But he's extremely intelligent, and he's a poet and a writer, and what he does is, you know, he gets his education in Europe, he travels to the United States, and he begins writing extensively and doing political work. Uh, for example, I believe he becomes, he becomes the ambassador of uh, some, or part of the ambassador team of uh, a South American country. I forget which one, I think it's Uruguay, maybe. Um, but he expounds really a philosophy of Cuban, de of democracy. He, he's absolutely, uh, absolute democracy for uh, all people. But Cuba and the characteristics of Cuba were different enough from the West and the United States that meant they had to have their own form of government. They couldn't just export the institutions of Europe and the United States and expect them to work. Now, he's never particularly clear with what this means because the man is a poet. And uh, when he gets to Cuba to finally fight, he's killed within the month. So this is the great martyr, the guy who to this day... You know, the revolution comes from Marti to Fidel. He's, he's the guy that everybody, sort of like in the United States, when we base, you know, uh, rhetorical arguments based on what the founding fathers would have wanted and wouldn't have wanted for the country, that is Marti to Cuba. He's this guy that everybody quotes because he wrote a lot and everybody can interpret him in different ways. How many high schools are named after him in Cuba? <laughs> a bunch. Yeah. A bunch. And, uh, high schools. And I'm guessing, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you see him everywhere. Now, when you visit Cuba, um, you know, there's political propaganda. It's a, it's a communist state and whatnot. 
um, political propaganda of like the old Soviet type where like every single street you cross, there's like a poster of like Fidel waving at you or like, you know, a revolucion. And Marti is in, you know, 50% of those. Like this mm. is like, for example, I memorized his, you were, I memorized his poetry when I was, uh, since I had to study elementary school in Cuba, I was, I had to memorize his poetry. Fantastically talented poet, very talented man. And since he died, other people got to decide what his legacy would be. So everyone is, so he can be used to both support the communist project. And there are some writings that can support, you know, socialist, uh, uh, leanings and socialist policies in government and he can also be used to support you know everything that the miami right-wing community or miami refugee community wants he had a lot of writings um and so he sort of gets the movement together he gets the old gang back together from 1868 in new york he gets that uh, the bronze titan back and he gets uh maximo gomez back in a big reunion tour to go to cuba and do the revolution right this time and they start doing it right. And within a few months, the entire island is an insurrection. They, they go from the easternmost province to the westernmost province, which is something that didn't happen in 1868. In 1868, they were really only in one, in one or two provinces. Yeah. They were really cooped up in the Orient. And so all of a sudden, the entire island is an insurrection. And here is when Spain does something that a lot of people are shocked to hear, but Spain brings concentration camps to Cuba. Um, there were concentration camps in Cuba in 1890 because it's similar to, to the Boer Wars, actually. Yeah. So it's like vaunted as being for the safety of the local population then. Yeah. Um, Mao Zedong has a great quote about how to start revolutions, which is, uh, you know, you must be like, like the fish swimming in the, in the ocean or in the river. And when, what he means by that is you recruit from the countryside you know, you, you do hit and run attacks, guerrilla tactics, you blend into the countryside, you recruit from there, and the countryside is really the lifeblood of the revolution. And so the captain general of Spain realizes this, uh, and he, he writes back to Spain in what I think is, is a super, it, it's a very unique correspondence that he decides to pen. And he says, listen, to fight this, this revolution that's here right now, I'm not morally capable of doing it. I know what has to be done, but I can't do it myself. And even if I fight it that way, there's no guarantee that in 30 years, they won't just fight another revolution. If you want a man to do the job right, I quit, send in General Weiler. So General Weiler, who is sometimes known as Weiler the Butcher, is sent by the Spanish Crown or Spanish Parliament at this point to, to Cuba. Now, he's a liberal in Spain, but he's a very austere man. And, and he's a guy who has sort of studied the how to beat a guerrilla playbook, how to beat guerrilla insurrections 101. And his yeah. plan is, and his plan is, is reconcentration. It's, we're going to clean out the countrysides, send them to some place where the rebels can't recruit from them. And then we're going to crush the rebellion just as violently as they're approaching us. This is a very violent war. So the reconcentration, General Weiler arrives on the island and starts doing the reconcentration policy. So uh, Spanish troops would show up to your house or your village, and they would tell you, okay, you have 24, 48 hours to pack up and go to this place. Everything you can carry on your person, 
you can take your cows with you, only the belongings you can carry on your back. Uh, that would either go to Spain, you know, cows and crops and whatnot, or it would be burnt. And then they would take you to special farming zones. But the problem was that this policy wasn't really thought out to be humanitarian. It was a military policy. So when they sent the Cuban population to these farming zones that popped out overnight, they were expecting them, hey, grow your own food. But growing food takes time. You need yeah. a significant amount of time to grow crops. And, and the army had provided them with meager rations. And also, this is 1890. I mean, there's practically no hygiene. Where are the toilets? Where are the vaccines? Et cetera, et cetera. So what you get is massive starvation. You get, uh, there's a famous picture of two men um, in the sun. One is wearing a big hat. They're in the Havana Cemetery. And they're sitting atop a mountain of skulls, like Mongol-style mountain of skulls, or pictures you would see from the Holocaust. Two look identical of starving Cuban children, their ribs visible. And the Cuban population seriously suffers from the reconcentration policy. There, there are wild numbers that like 20% of the population died or something like that. They're a bit overblown, but I think something like 10% of the population died. Um, Cuba had the lowest of the countries that were recording this. Cuba had the lowest birth rate of any country that was recording during this time. Uh, and the rebels don't help this either because the rebels would come into your town and if you collaborated with Spain, they would hang you. They would burn your crops. They would flood everything. Sometimes they even flooded a town so Spain couldn't get anything. And not only that, the rebels also raided the reconcentration camps. So, so the people that were starving that they were you know, claiming to defend, they would raid them to cause a bigger headache for Spain. And this turns into a PR nightmare for Spain. I mean, here we have this guy with a scary sounding name, Weiler, Weiler, putting people in concentration camps 90 miles away from the United States. And there's an actual sentiment in the United States that there's something wrong. Okay. So the United States at this time is feeling a general malaise in the sense that it, it was a country that was fought a civil war and had a reconstruction period where the North occupied the South but it was never really complete. North and South disliked each other. Uh, and at the same time, it was a country that was muscular. It was coming into its own for the first time, and it wanted to operate in the same vein as the great European powers who, you know, were about to divide Africa up. And the United States at this time wants to flex its muscles, wants to show it can handle problems in its own backyard. And at the same time as this, you know, general psychic feeling happens in the populace, not to get metaphysical or, you know, to, to occultist, but at the same time as that's happening, newspaper wars break out. So yeah. there are very enterprising people. This is the era of yellow journalism, you know, Hearst and Pulitzer. We get the Pulitzer Prize from, who start two very big newspapers and they essentially tie, and these are men with political aspirations, by the way, they didn't just want to sell newspapers. Um, and they essentially tie their, their newspapers to the Cuban cause, reporting, oh, we really have to help these people. They, they, they were step in step with the Cuban Revolutionary Party. The Cuban Revolutionary Party would send them news of atrocities and the papers would publish them or they would just make up atrocities. And so Cuba mania sweeps the United States. We have to help these people against Spain. Spain has to back down or they have to agree to mediation. These are brave uh, rebel fighters, much like us, much like we threw out our own empire. That's what they're trying to do right now. 
that belligerence, Spain doesn't take kindly to it. And you know, yeah. you know the Spanish. They're proud. They're very <laughs> proud people. And that eventually, you know, leads to haggling back and forth negotiations. Is Spain going to agree to arbitration? Is it not? It eventually agrees, but it's way too late because at that time, the Maine, which is a, a ship that the United States had sent there officially uh, out of goodwill, out of a good showing to the Spanish, um, blows up. And, and nobody really knows why it blew up, although later studies have come out made by people much more qualified than I. I heard uh, at least one of you is very interested in, sh in ships. Ah, uh, uh, it's No, <laughs> that's me. So there, there have been later studies done that similar ships blew up. It's, it's a problem where the, the ammunition stores were too close to, to something, I think the engines or something, and they caught fire and they blew up. And so everybody it blames one spark. Yeah, all it takes is one spark, exactly. All it takes is one spark to, to start a, a war, the inciting event. So the ship blows up. Of course, the Spanish deny they had anything to do with it. Uh, conspiracy theories are around that the Cuban revolutionaries blow it up to uh, get the United States involved as a partner. And even before any official investigation has been conducted, the, uh, the Hearst paper is publishing that the Spanish blew up the main. And so with that mania, the United States decides, hey, why the hell not? And just trounces Spain, just everywhere, up and down. It's like pre-World War I United States. This is a European power as well. This, yeah, they want to act along the European lines. Because when you read the writing of like a lot of the, the, the men boy, boy men, the Boy Scouts of that time, like Theodore Roosevelt, who quits his job as assistant secretary of the Navy to go fight in the Spanish-American War, as like a 40, that's like a 40 year old man. Mm. Uh, they're all talking about the fact that you have these decaying European decadent powers. Uh, and meanwhile, you have the United States, which is this beautiful flourishing democracy that is colonized from shining coast to shining coast. The Spanish American war happens just after the frontier closes. This is part of the general malaise I was talking about where the United States is like, okay, who are we? What are we doing now? Um, because the frontier is closed, so they have to expand to other areas. And so the United States comes in, they have a war, and uh, they beat the Spanish in the Philippines, and that's its own story, and with a very, very violent suppression of the Filipino people by the United States. But they win in Cuba, too. But the second they get to Cuba, those beautiful dreams they had of, you know, these brave uh, rebel fighters... Uh, that are overthrowing a colonial empire start to vanish when they realize, hot damn, 80% or something like that, 70% of these rebels are black or mixed race. Perish the thought. Yeah, and you have people, for example, like Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill, uh, I think his first military posting is to Cuba during this uh, 1895 revolution. And his first, uh, he writes back home that, He's impressed by, by the Spanish propaganda. Oh, no, he's impressed by the rebel propaganda. But he writes back home, hey, these rebels are a bunch of blacks. Like, they're a disorganized rabble. They should not be in charge of Cuba. And then a year later, writing to his mom, he's like, I may have spoken too soon. <laughs> I, no longer, I no longer think this. Um, so the United States get there, gets there, and they're like, wow, these, these guys are not fit to rule themselves. These, these are, uh, there's all sorts of, you know, they, they suddenly have the realization because the United States historically has been a country that has struggled with race, to say the least. Uh, and uh, 
the plan is at this point, the United States is not sure what to do because they either want to annex Cuba or they, or they want to just get Cuba ready for democracy. You know, that, that thing that uh, we said we do in the Middle East, you know, overthrow people, get, get them ready for democracy and whatnot. Here's, here, and here's one of the weird parts of history. You know, the United States just sort of a weird self-denying decree. In the hectic lead up to the war, they passed something called the Teller Amendment, which says that the, uh, that the United States, and they passed this at the behest of uh, some lawyers from the Cuban Revolutionary Party, that the United States cannot annex Cuba. So despite the fact that the United States, and there's a lot of uh, questions as to whether or not the revolutionaries could have won the war on their own. My opinion is probably not, not at that point. Um, they really did need United States help. They didn't really have a Navy. Um, the United States passes this amendment that tells them they cannot annex Cuba. But here they are on the island, reigning supreme, already not on good terms with the winning army. So for example, the winning army wants to do a parade in the, the town of Santiago when they win. And the United States, uh, uh, the man who eventually becomes the, the consul, doesn't let them because he's afraid the black troops are going to riot. So already they're insulting the Cuban revolutionaries right off the bat. Uh, and so they're here. They have the island. They're masters of the island. They won the war. And now they have to decide, how are we going to set up a democracy here? Uh, under what systems? Under what leaders, more importantly, so they can be friendly to us? And uh, should we just try to annex the island? Should we put people in charge that are pro-annexation? And so here is where a period that some historians describe as neo-colonialism, the neo-colony, begins. Thanks so much, Nick, for coming on and, and starting us off. Uh, we've, we've got to the end of the 19th century, which I think is a good place to leave it for today, because I don't want to rush you through the 20th century, because I know you've got so much more to tell us, and, and we're really enjoying this. So thanks so much. Hey, thank you very much for, for having me. Sorry if I was a bit uh, nervous to start off, but it's no, absolutely I'm... a pleasure talking about this. And, uh, you know, you... It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a passion. I, I love discussing it, and I'm glad I could tell you about it. Yeah, you've been great. Um, we can't wait to have you back on. Thank you very much. Uh, tomorrow, if you think you've had enough of your family on lockdown, just you wait until you hear about Queen Victoria and her bonkers family tree. We're going to be talking all about her wicked uncles, in inverted commas, um, and basically why by the time they were done the monarchy was in a complete state when she came to the throne so uh, it's really funny and really interesting um, and some good Georgian history for you which we don't do nearly enough we will also have for you a very special program commemorating the 80th anniversary of the evacuations at Dunkirk it's been put together by Joshua Levine who not only has written his own book about Dunkirk but was of course the historical advisor to Christopher Nolan on the epic film lots of you have taken part in that we really hope that it's something to mark the occasion so join us for that uh, you can now nominate History Hack for an award if you go to britishpodcastawards.com you can nominate us for a listener's choice award uh, you have to do your vote by the 6th of july 2020 uh, and they will announce the winner at the british podcast awards on saturday the 11th of july 2020 uh, so if you wouldn't mind we'd really appreciate it don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so there now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. 
And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 